0: الحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على سيدنا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا الحمد لله أحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له والصلاه وسلم على سيدنا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى اله ومن والاه there was the Seljuks of Central Asia of which uh, Abu Hamid Raghazali was part of and then there were the Anatolian Seljuk but they they were very what's interesting about the Seljuks is that they were very disturbed by a trend in, in all religions, which is uh, esotericism, uh, what's called Bataniyyah in the Islamic tradition. They were very bothered by uh, Batani influences in Islam. And this is why Abu Hamid عنه, was not a polemicist. He did not write a lot of polemical treatises. Some s- scholars are polemical, like Ibn Taymiyyah is an extremely, Rahimullah. he was an extremely uh, polemical writer. So he was often writing to refute or to undermine the arguments of others. And, and, and there's a role in all uh, religious traditions for uh, uh, polemics. The Qur'an itself has arguments against those who say things uh, against the truth. Uh, but Abu Hamid was not. He was a very constructive writer. He, he did not uh, really like polemics because, um, one, there's a hub for the nafs that's very dangerous, so polemicists can often, because they're they're arguing, they can often end up uh, falling into a certain trap that's very easy to fall into, especially when you're clever, uh, which is seeing the faults in others all the time and uh, seeing your own superior position. So he did not do a lot. But the, the polemics that he did write against were against the Botanilla. It was very interesting. Now, one of the things about our time is that the, the Botanilla influences on our civilization are great, both within Islam and without. So there is a lot of... Uh, the whole New Age philosophy comes out of Botanilla. Uh, a lot of the religious trends that you see, even within traditional Christianity, was all, which was also deeply opposed to uh, esotericism and the, the Sufis I'm, I'm not going to have that yeah, that's okay the Sufis who um, who ha- have a tendency to slip into esotericism uh, which is very dangerous and get involved in things like numerology and things so within the Sufic tradition you have uh, those problems as well So it's, and Imam al-Ghazali addresses that what people tend to forget even though he's accused of being a Sufi is that he was one of the greatest critics of the Sufis which is very interesting that Abu Hamid they always say that he's the one that brought Sufism into Islam it's not true Sufism was very much part of Islam before Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and in many ways he's a derivative writer into Sawuq, he does not He's really taking previous sources like Abu Talib, al Qulub, uh, Kishf al-Mahjub, and and other very uh, great uh, works of literature, Abu Naim's Hilya, and other things, and he's condensing and writing. If he does have a genius in Tasawwuf, it's certainly his pen was an extraordinary pen. He had great uh, abilities at drawing analogies at creating images that are tend to be unforgettable when you read them he but he also prior to him most scholars saw the science of tasawwuf as a part of islam it was what what they called ihsan and there's people that don't like the word tasawwuf but the word tasawwuf has been used consistently in our civilization for uh, almost since the very start. So this idea somehow that it's a problematic term is problematic in and of itself. Because if you get rid of it, what you're doing is denying an incredible amount of tradition, including Ibn Taymiyyah, who has a, a whole volume on Fatawa in tassawuf, uh, including uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, who wrote a book Commenting on one of the most important works of tasawwuf and asserts the tasawwuf of Imam al-Junaid. So the problem with the word, if there is a problem, is that the word becomes nebulous. And one of the most important things in any, any tradition is to define terms. And so much of what is not tasawwuf and has nothing to do with tasawwuf is included in this concept of tasawwuf. And so, like everything, uh, tasawwuf needs cleansing uh, because things accrue within traditions that are alien to the tradition. So, that's one thing. But Abu Hamid, in his, and he was a truly great genius, I mean, one of the truly great geniuses in human history. He is more important in the Islamic tradition as an Usuli scholar than he is as a Sufi. And, and as a mutakallam, as a theologian. He, he's more important. His, his work in Mustasfa is the single most important book of usul after uh, Imam Shafi's uh, preliminary work on the subject. The Mustasfa is uh, the foundation of usul. One of the ironies of the Hanbali tradition is that their m- most important work on usul, Rawdata al by Ibn Qudama, is an actual abridgment of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali's book. And so the, the Hanbali Madhab itself is, is, their usul is based on the usul of, of Muhammad al Ghazali, which is just the irony, I think is lost on a lot of people. But uh, what he did was he showed that tasawwuf, or rather ihsan, is, is not a third of Islam. It is the animating factor of the religion itself. In other words, it is the heart of Islam, and without it, Islam becomes a dead thing. And that's really what he did. He centralized the concept of spirituality, that, that this is a spiritual tradition before it's a legal tradition, before it's a theological tradition, before it's a religious tradition of rites and rituals. It is a spiritual tradition. And the reason for that is because he understood that the single most important of all the sciences of human beings is the science of, of, of being. And he clearly states this in the introduction to his, his book on Usul and mustasfa where he says that all knowledges can be divided into two, universal knowledges and particular knowledges. There's only one universal knowledge and that is the knowledge of al mojud of being, of what exists. So he understood that metaphysics is the foundation of knowledge. And what he understood is that the the strangest thing about the world is being itself, being itself. Like the story that David Foster Wallace tells in his famous essay, This is Water, where two two young fish are swimming by an old fish and the old fish says to the two young fish, How's the water, boys? And the two young fish move a little further along and then one says to the other, What's water? <laughs> right? Because we don't think about being. It's, it's what we exist in. And so we don't actually think about it. But it is the single most important thing to understand. Because this thing which is being is called alam. It's called the world, the cosmos. Alam in Arabic is called ismu ala. It's the, the noun of instrumentation. It's the noun of instrumentation. Like is, a, is what you imprint with. The It's what you make an imprint with. is what you know by. It's the instrument of knowledge. That's why it comes from "ilm" itself. It's the instrument of knowledge. And so knowledge is the single most important thing that we do as human beings. Why? Because we are knowers by our very nature. This is what sets us aside from all the other animals. And this is why Allah says about people that don't seek knowledge, They're like cattle. No, they're even more astray. Why? Because a cow is being a cow. Its being is being fulfilled in its cowness. But a human that does not seek knowledge is not being a human because it's not fulfilling its humanity as a knower. This is what we are as human beings. And this is why life itself is a spiritual experience. You've got all these people, I want a spiritual experience. This is it, folks. (laughs) This is the spiritual experience. Because how are we experiencing it? with consciousness, which is not a material thing. It's a spiritual thing. We're experiencing it through the senses, but the reality of our lives are spiritual realities. We're having a spiritual experience right now by simply being conscious. You don't need, if you want an altered consciousness, there's drugs for that. (laughs) That's, That's why people take drugs. Because they don't understand they're already having a spiritual experience. They don't need drugs to have a spiritual experience. You don't need to jump out of a plane to have a spiritual experience. You don't need to be on Mount Kilimanjaro to have a spiritual experience. It's right here and right now. It's just simply being aware, being conscious. Because this is an immaterial phenomenon. Consciousness is not a material reality because Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. When he created the, the human being, kharaqahu, right? Min He created him from teen. This is the body. It's made of mud, material matter, water and earth, which is the essential elements of this planet. Water and earth. 70% water, 30% earth. Like our bodies. 70% water, 30% earth. Allah created us min Right? But then he said, naftahu fihi min ruhi i breathed into it from my ruh so this is when he talked about the nafs the soul he didn't call it thing he said it came from his from his ruh because your soul is not a material thing it's a spiritual thing and it's your soul through the vehicle of the body that's experiencing the world You can't experience the world through anything other than your soul. And that's why mere experience of life on earth is a spiritual experience. And there are people that become aware of it and there are people that think they're having a material experience. They're they're called materialists. They deny the unseen even though their very soul can't be seen. Their own consciousness can't be seen. You cannot find consciousness in a microscope. Scientists have been looking for it for a very long time. And they haven't found it. So the very thing that enables them to deny the spirit. Is the spirit itself. And this is why the Malahida are nas They're the most stupid people. They are. It's a, our ulama have always said. That those who deny the soul are, are, are fools. Because they're denying the very thing that's enabling them to deny it. So, that is one of the great contributions of Abu Hamid, to recognize that the animating spirit, animating spirit, the thing that gives it life, that gives it animus spirit, is, is this Ihsan. And that Islam without Iman is nifaq, but Iman and Islam without Ihsan, becomes, uh, it can become a harsh thing, very often, like what we see now amongst some of these extremists, it's a harsh thing. Or it becomes a uh, or it becomes just a dry uh, legalistic thing that doesn't enable people to taste the sweetness. The Prophet said, the one who's tasted the sweetness of faith. Faith has a sweetness. And that's when Ihsan uh, infuses the faith. So, you're here seeking knowledge, inshallah. That's the point of this. It's called a rihla, because the rihla in classical Islamic tradition was a journey of knowledge. And there are many great rihlas. The of ibn Jubair is a great rihla. It's worth reading. It's translated into English for those who are interested. And it's a very interesting picture of, for want of a better term, medieval Islamic civilization, where you, for instance, when he goes to Damascus, there were circles of ilm all throughout the masjid. They had, they did the Dalai al uh, they did Khatm al-Quran, uh, they were studying all the traditional sciences. This was rife throughout the Muslim world. These mos- mosques were filled with uh, either dhikr or knowledge. And these are the two paths to God. The path of the Ulama is not the path of the of the, the ubad. Every Alam is a Abid by nature because our our tradition is Ibadah. But the Ibadah of the Alam is study. And this is something that a lot of students of knowledge fail to understand in, in, within the tradition. And this is why the, within our tradition uh, the these people that are opposed to tradition have been very successful because they take the the so-called traditionalists and they look at their activities and their practices and very often they, they've lost study as a foundation of their tradition. They're more interested in doing mawalid or doing inshad, or doing, which is not the way of the ulama. The way of the ulama was not uh, having like gatherings of dhikr. The the way of the ulama was study. The way of the ulama was dars and transmission and naql and mastering the uloom. Uh, It takes a lifetime to master the Islamic tradition of immense study and hard work. We don't have people that have that himma anymore and this is part of our crises is that we have so much ignorance, widespread ignorance and this is why when people come with refutations and proofs, even if they're uh, fallacious ones, they're very often, the traditionalists are unable to actually uh, refute them because they don't have knowledge anymore. All they can say is, oh, he's a Wahhabi, or he's a, this is their response, is just to say, oh, uh, and dismiss them like this. But meanwhile, these other schools spread more and more. Because the traditionalists in many ways have abandoned their tradition. They give it lip service and they tell how important it is, but they actually don't really do the work needed to preserve the tradition. Because you can have a library with all the books on the shelves, but if you never open the books, all you're preserving is the books. And Allah fa- faults the Jews for that. al yahmiru like the donkey that carries books on its back, if you don't understand the tradition. And this is why one of the things at Zaytuna that's been, uh, for me, bet uh, Noir is, is this students coming in thinking that they're going to be doing dhikr and doing uh, things. And I'm not interested in that i want them memorizing quran and studying the best uh, practice of ibadah if you want to do extra ibadah is to memorize the quran instead of singing uh, qasidas that are nice I-, I like qasidas i like poetry they're nice but you can sing qasidas until the cows come home it's not going to rectify the crisis of our ummah And the proof is, in many of the places where the worst calamities are happening, those places were filled with Qasida singing and filled with Mawalid. And that's the truth. And it didn't prevent these fitan from happening. This is a knowledge of, uh, this is a civilization of knowledge. This is the civilization of knowledge. Franz Rosenthal, the great Jewish orientalist and historian, who was a, a world class historian, He wrote a book called Knowledge Triumphant, arguing that he could not find any civilization in human history like the Islamic civilization, because this is a civilization, he said, that put the pursuit, the acquisition, the development, and the transmission of knowledge at the forefront of its existence. Its very reason for existence was knowledge itself. And the Prophet was a seeker of knowledge. He was a seeker of knowledge. Why was he up in the cave? What was he trying to do in the cave? He was trying to know reality. He wanted to know reality. And the Prophet him, what is the first commandment that he's given once that reality addresses him? Read in the name of your Lord. And then tells him that he's the one that bilqalam, al-insana ma lam yalam. He taught with the pen, and he taught the human being what he didn't know. So at the very beginning of the revelation, is read in the name of your Lord. Read. Who taught with the pen, he taught with the pen, and he taught man what he didn't know. And this is why the path of knowledge was the central path of our tradition. But not everybody is uh, cut out for this path. Everybody has to do some suluk on the path of knowledge. And this is called fardul ayn, which is really what this rehla is about. But from amongst those who... And this is where you discover whether or not this is really your path. Once you learn your fardul during that time if you tasted a love for that knowledge and a desire to learn more then you're going to want to set out on that path of the pursuit of knowledge for those who don't have that and there are many examples in the hadith but always almost always the person that the prophet permits the other path is Nakira look in the hadith and you will notice that like for instance the hadith of, of Bin Busar who says that Atha and Nabiya Rajulun, a man, Nakira, a man came to the Prophet and he said, Yara Sulla, Kad Kathurat Aleya Alena Sharail Islam. Fadabun at the Shabbatubihi Jamiun. Give me some door that's comprehensive that I can do. And the Prophet ﷺ said, So he's saying, Look, I can't learn all this stuff. It's too much. Give me something that I can do that will enable me to get to my Lord. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Let your tongue always be moist with the dhikr of Allah. So that is a path. It's the path of ibadah. But fakihun wahidun min when person who understands this religion with knowledge is is worse for shaitan than a thousand devotees, than a thousand people of of the path of Dhikr. And Dhikr is a path, and I'm not denying that path. Dhikr is a path, but the path of knowledge is a higher path and it's the central path of our religion. When the Prophet came into the masjid and saw two hilaq, one of them they were doing Dhikr and another they were studying, he sat with the one studying. And he said, I was sent as a teacher. So, if you want to know which circle your, your Prophet is going to sit in, it's the one where people are learning, not where they're doing dhikr, saying, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, La ilaha illallah, akbar. And those are good circles. And that's part of our religion. But that's not the circle that the Prophet sat in, it's the circle of knowledge. And all of the greatest scholars of tasawwuf were great ulama. They were muhadithun, muftun, fuqaha. Abu Hamid is considered one of the greatest fuqaha of the Shafi'i Madhab. He's he's arguably the greatest Usuli scholar in the history of Islam. He was a logician. He wrote over uh, he wrote six books on logic. He was a mutakallim. He wrote very important works on theology. So, that's a very important thing to remember while you're here. مَنْ سارك يلتمس فيه علم الله له به طَرِيقًا يَلْتَمِسُ hadith sahih, in sahih Muslim, whoever sets out on a path, يَلْتَمِسُ فِيهِ Ilma, And there it's nakira. He seeks a knowledge. It could be tajweed, it could be hadith, it could be fiqh. It has to be ilm nafi', a beneficial knowledge. And even engineering is a beneficial knowledge. Medicine is a beneficial knowledge. These are called fara'id kifaya. These are, these are not the Ain knowledges. They're, they're kifaya, they're collective obligations. In Bab al-Jihad, in the Maliki texts, this is where they mention the obligation of engineering, of, me, of medicine, of agriculture. Studying agriculture, we need people to study, especially now, studying alternative methods to, to these methods that are destroying topsoil and things like that, like hydroponics and other methods of alternative agriculture, organic uh, agriculture, getting back to the things that preserve the land and not uh, dissipate and waste uh, and destroy the land. So. Medicine is one of the great sciences of Islam. Many of our ulama were physicians as well as being ulama. So medicine is a great science and it's a knowledge and it's a beneficial knowledge. And if you set out after learning your fardain to become a doctor with the intention of keeping Allah's servants healthy, then you are rewarded. And, you, and it will be a path to Jannah. Seeking medicinal knowledge can be a path to Jannah if your niya is the right niyyah. See, going to engineering school can be a path to Jannah if you learn your fardain. We're not, this is, our religion is not simply religious knowledge per se, and I mean by all knowledge is religious knowledge if it's beneficial. But what I'm talking about is what we usually think of when we think about religious knowledge, which is uh, fiqh and hadith and, and tafsir and usul, these are the quote-unquote religious knowledge. No! All knowledge that's beneficial is religious knowledge in our tradition. And this is why scientists are honored in our tradition. One of the crises, and I wrote about this recently with the moon sighting, one of the crises is that so many of the people that study fiqh now no longer know knowledge. They don't know science. And this is one of the things that secularists use against religion is look at these religious people. They know nothing about science. Our, Our tradition was a tradition that science was part of our religion which is why many of our ulama were cutting-edge scientists at, at, at their time. Abu Hamid was a master of, of uh, geometry. Uh, Abu, Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi said by 15 he could survey land, he, he knew trigonometry, spherical geometry and he could use an astrolabe with uh, excellent abilities. At 15, he was a master of the mathematical sciences our religion we, the the Muslims created many of the higher mathematics that ended up being developed in Europe with calculus to solve religious problems they they used the, the trigonometry to solve problems of qibla and problems of moon determination NASA all these moon sighting charts that, that uh, the West uses now were developed by the Ottomans. That's where they actually got them. The Ottomans were using trigonometry. I, I have a book, a handwritten manuscript on the azij, the charts that they used to do for moon sighting. And now we've got people that ignore them. They're looking for the moon in a place where it's impossible to see the moon by consensus. It's ilm qat'i. And we've got Fuqah saying no, but the book says if two just people see the moon, then we we fast or break our fast. But if science says it's impossible for those two just people to see the moon, they must have seen something else. Like Shurayh Al-Qadi who went out to sight the moon with a man, and the man said, subhanAllah, there it is. And Shurayh looked and he said, I don't see it. He's right there, look, look. He said, I don't see it. He said, subhanAllah, it's right there. And so Shurayh looked at the man, he noticed one of his eye from the, from the, had curved over in front of his eye in a crescent form. And so he took it, moved it back and he said, do you still see it? He said, SubhanAllah, it's gone. <laughs> you know, this is, this is what we're dealing with. There's so many things you can see in the sky. Anybody that's gone sighting over a period of time knows how tricky sighting at the early stage, the birth of the moon, is very difficult to see. But if science says you cannot see it. According to our Usuli scholars, from centuries ago, they said that al, al, uh, al-falaki yenfi yuthbituha. The, This is Al-Qarafi, one of the greatest Usuli scholars of Egypt. He said, the astronomer negates a sighting. In other words, if the astronomer says that he couldn't have seen it, it's impossible. Because that knowledge is not new knowledge. It was developed centuries ago. Astronomy, observational astronomy has not developed considerably in the last 3,000 years. Theoretical astronomy, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But the observational astronomy has not developed. They could predict eclipses to very, very narrow margins centuries ago. They knew when new moons would arrive. They knew when it could be seen. They knew what day it could be seen. And the Prophet said, if it's obscured, either by cloud, he didn't say, if clouds obscure it. If it's obscured, then, complete 30 days. And the other hadith, uh, calculated, Ibn Rushd says that hadith is, mujmal. in other words, it's, it's ambiguous, and the, mubayyan, the, the clarification of it is in the other riwayah, iddah And he negated calculation. There's only three scholars in the history of Islam that permitted calculation. And they were all refuted by the vast majority of scholars because they said the Mubayyan the uh, of, of, uh, hadith uh, overrides the Mujmal hadith. Anyway, that's a whole other debate. But my point is, is the loss of this balance between natural sciences and between the sciences that, that are based on revelation is a crisis in our ummah. And this is why we need both. But we also need our natural scientists to have enough knowledge of the, the traditional sciences uh, to know their limits. Because they often don't realize their limits. And also for the people on the other side to know their limits. We're, we're half educated on both sides. There's very few fully educated people today that that are educated in natural sciences and are educated in the, the qualitative sciences. So in conclusion, um, you're here to study and so use that time wisely. Uh, in, in one of the early chapters of uh, *Riyad al which is a very important book. It's, it's, it's the best book of hadith for lay people to read um, hadith books are, are actually very dangerous for uh, non-experts. In fact, one of the greatest Hadith scholars in the history of Islam said, Hadith books will lead you astray if you're not trained. They, beca- they are actually madhanna they, al they they, they they will lead you astray if you're not trained. And this is why all the attacks on Islam, the vast majority of them are from the Hadith tradition, not from the Qur'an. Because the hadith, our scholars were not like some of the medieval scholars in other world religion traditions where they hid all of their things that they didn't like. If it bothered them, they just removed them from the books. Our scholars put everything in the book. And this is why the Sira book, the earliest Sira book, has stories that are clearly impossible to have occurred. But the enemies of Islam take those stories and they say, look, the Prophet was poking out the eyes of people that uh, uh, were in ridda and things like this, the Prophet never did anything that was cruel. He didn't torture people, and these are qawaid in our Deen. But those stories are there. You'll find them if you read them. Uh, even some got into the Sahih Hadith. Uh, Imam Ali, the Hadith that he burnt uh, people in uh, in Palestine for ridda, which is one of the proofs that one group recently burning people used as as a kind of proof um, for burning people. Any hadith that puts Ali in a bad light is suspect, even if it gets into the hadith collection. Any hadith, because of the fitna. So, you will get hadith even in the Sahih, if they put Ali in a bad light, they're suspect. In that very same hadith, his own cousin, Ibn Abbas, said that he wouldn't have done it. So, how is it that Ali could have less knowledge than Ibn Abbas? Especially about something as momentous as that. So, anyway, these are the problems of a hadith. But if you're going to read a hadith on your own, just for uh, the enjoyment of reading directly the words of the Prophet, ﷺ, which has a, a type of what they call fail. You know, there's there's a great blessing in reading his word because they do affect the heart. Um, the best book is the Arba'ina nawawiya which still should be read with um, with a teacher. It's much better to read with teachers, especially. There's a few hadiths in there that are problematic. The hadith "Umirtu an yashidu an la ilaha wa Muhammad Rasulullah. That hadith "Umirtu." He didn't say "Umirtum." You were commanded to fight people. He said "Umirtu." He was commanded to fight the Arabs. That hadith is khas. It was was not considered a general hadith. And uh, and in in the later, when Abu Bakr and Omar debated about the... the, uh, He used that hadith, um, uh, Omar, to say that Abu Bakr shouldn't fight uh, the Arabs. But he said, even if they refused the tying cord of a camel in Zakat, they used to pay the prophet I would still do it. Those were Arabs that had submitted uh, to that time. Um, but anyway, that hadith is, uh, is not a general hadith. It's not meant to be applied. And this is what Ibn Abi Jamrah and others have said. It's clear. So people can read that hadith and this is what these people now do. Oh, we're commanded to fight people until they say la ilaha illallah. No. You let people, Lakum In fact, the, the great uh, Ibn Ashur, the Tunisian scholar said, about all of the hadith, You know, abrogation is one of the major problems in our tradition, this idea that there are ayahs that are abrogated. And there are many books, the Malikis tended to incline towards the abrogation, and Qadhi Abu Bakr wrote a great book on abrogation, but There are very few hadith in which there's a consensus of abrogation. Very few ayahs in which the ulama actually agreed upon that they were... And anytime there's an ikhtidaaf about the Qur'an, is it muhkam or not? You should assume it's muhkam. Because there should be an ijma' for that. It's not something... The Qur'an is the karamullah. Fakhruddin al-Razi said, If we say that all these verses about being patient and bearing other people's wrong, if we say these are all abrogated, we've essentially abrogated makaram al-akhlaq. We abrogated ethics. Why would Allah command people to do those things uh, and, th- and then say, oh, I didn't mean that really. You don't have to do that. But the, the difference of Mecca and Medina is the difference between uh, personal behavior without authority and the behavior of the government. The government has a different. The government's not there to forgive. They're there to redress wrongs. And so when you get into power, you don't. You don't when, when somebody steals your car and, and, and then he goes to, to trial for doing it and the judge says, no, nah, it's okay. You can have the car and I, and, and I forgive you. He has no right to do that. It's your car. And, if you, and you want to redress the wrong. But you have a right. If somebody stole your car, you have a right to actually forgive them. And not take it to, maybe he needs it more than me. You can do that. And just say, you know, like uh, a story about Abu Yazid, who somebody stole his clothes um, at the hammam, and he ran after him, chasing him, and the thieves running further. And he said, no, 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 slow down. He said, I want to just say you can have them. I just wanted to put you into the halal and that's a maqam for people that forgive other people and that that's a right but once like for instance if somebody steals in your store you can forgive them you don't have to take them to the government but if you once you take it to the government then there's no wasata you can't say oh I forgive him or no once you bring the government in the government has a job which is public order and safety so these, these are the nuances of our tradition that have to be studied. So, he, his, his tradition in this book is to bring, he has a chapter like this is فضل, uh, or So, it's the virtue of seeking knowledge and of pointing others to, the, to good. And, and he begins with some verses. Are they the same, those who know and those who don't know? They're not the same. Allah elevates those who believe amongst you and who have been given knowledge by degrees. So the more belief, the more knowledge, the higher your rank. اللَّهَ مِنْ الْعُلَمَاءِ Those who have true khashya of Allah, awe all of Allah, are ulama, are people of ilm. Because khashya is fear that is accompanied with knowledge. You cannot say, الْكَلْبْ The dog fears me. You can say, الْكَلْبْ Al- is always bil ilm. It has to be uh, coupled with knowledge or it's not khashya. روى شيخاني عن معاوية رضي الله تعالى عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من يريد الله به خيرا يفقه في الدين So this is what's called a جملة شرطية Whomsoever Allah wishes good for or wills good for من يريد الله به خيرا يفقه في الدين مجزوم بالشرط so he, he gives him understanding of the deen. Now later, fiqh became, it meant uh, knowledge of fiqh, of ahkam. That's not the meaning in the hadith. The meaning is understanding, fahm Which can include fiqh and knowledge of fiqh. That's why he's called a faqih because he understands those ahkam and fiqh is very important. وروى الشيخ خاني عن أبي موسى رضي الله تعالى عنه قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم مثل ما بعثني الله به من الهدى والعلم كمثل غيث أصاب أرضا فكانت منها طائفة طيبة قبلة الماء فانبتت الكلة والعشبة الكثير وكان منها أجادب أمسكت الماء ونفع الله بها الناس فشربوا منها وسقوا وزرعوا وَأَصَابَ طَائِفَةً مِنْهَا أخرى إِنَّمَا هِيَ قِيْعَانَ لَا تُمْسِكُ مَاءً وَلَا تُنْبِتُ كَلَأً فَذَلِكَ مَثْلُ مَنْ فَقُهَا فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ وَنَفَعَا وَمَا بَعَثَنِي اللَّهُ بِهِ فَعَلِمَ وَعَلَّمَ وَمَثَلُ مَنْ لَمْ يَرْفَعْ بِذَلِكَ رَأْسًا مَنْ لَا يَرْفَعُ بذلك وَلَمْ يَقْبَلْ اللَّهِ الَّذِي أُرْسِلْتُ بِهِ So, this hadith is a, a, a very important hadith because the Prophet gives the likeness of what God sent him with from guidance and knowledge. That it's like a rain that settles on a earth, right? comes down on, on a earth. And a, a group مِنْهَا طَائِفَةٌ طَيِّبَةٌ الْمَاءِ So there's a good earth that الْمَاءِ And it's very interesting, Because one of the things that happens when rain comes is the earth literally...